Mark's vivid and fast-moving account of these two healing stories that he's woven together almost enable us to feel that we're part of the crowd that witnessed the events of that day. We can almost experience the, the crowd jostling around Jesus, hear the din and the hubbub created by so many conversations going on, feel the emotions rising to the service, surface, as well as taking in the sights, sounds, and smells of the surroundings impacting upon our senses. What may not be quite so easy is to put ourselves exactly in the place of Jairus, the synagogue leader, whose daughter was at the point of death, or in the place of the woman who had had a condition of bleeding for 12 young years and was now concealed in the midst of this gathering throng. Unless you've been in the same position as Jairus, or unless you've suffered with the kind of internal bleeding that the woman had, it, it is very hard to identify with them, to know exactly how they were feeling. But what from our own experience of life we can appreciate and understand in these two characters at the heart of this narrative is that both of them had a sense of fear and desperation that led them to Jesus. And in both of them, there was a faith that enabled healing to take place. I think I might myself have a little bit of an inkling of how Jairus might have felt. Summoned by a phone call to the hospital in the middle of the night, I was confronted by the frightening prospect that my newly born granddaughter, who was only a matter of days rather than weeks old, was fighting for her life in intensive care. I will never forget the indescribable feelings of fear, horror, and sheer powerlessness that came over me, especially when the consultant prepared all of us who were largely keeping silent vigil in the waiting room that we should expect the worst. Never, never have I prayed with such desperation and such earnestness as I did through the long hours of that night. And I'm glad to say that I have a lively, bubbly seven-year-old granddaughter for whom I give thanks to God each time I see her. Praise God. The consultant had said, we're trying this last drug. We don't think it's going to work, but we're trying it anyway. And now she's like any other seven-year-old child. You may too be able to identify in some way with Jairus or with the woman at least with a similar sense of that fear and desperation that brought you to turn and reach out to Jesus 
with whatever faith you could muster. For this is what these two stories are all about. They're about fear and they're about faith. So it's not just a story about Jairus and his daughter or a story about a woman with a condition of bleeding. It's your story and it's my story too. And this narrative about fear and faith, yours and mine, is emphasized in the way Mark weaves these two stories together. It may well be that events unfolded exactly in the way set out in the gospel account. But whether that's the case or not, the technique of fitting one story in the middle of another is one that Mark uses elsewhere in his gospel. It's called a Markan sandwich. So you start out with a slice of bread, which is Jairus coming to Jesus. Then you have the filling in the middle, which is the account of the woman with hemorrhages. And then you have the other slice of bread, which is Jesus going to the house of Jairus to heal his daughter. Tom Wright, New Testament theologian and historian, describes this Mark and Sandwich in these words. The flavor of the outer story adds zest to the inner one. The taste of the inner one is meant in turn to permeate the outer one. And the contrast is further highlighted by this little detail of 12 years. The age, we are told, of Jairus' daughter and the length of time the woman had been afflicted with bleeding without any relief or respite. Although Mark begins this account with the slice of bread that is Jairus, I want to start with the filling and go to the woman with hemorrhages, for it's to her that Jesus said, daughter, your faith has healed you. Before thinking about her faith, I think we need to spend a few moments on the desperation that brought her to Jesus and the fear that must have consumed her. The requirements of the Jewish law, as set out in Leviticus chapter 15, deemed this woman to be unclean. Anyone who had any physical contact with her would also become unclean and would need to keep apart from other people until sunset when they would have to wash themselves and all the clothing they had been wearing. So we can see why the woman wanted to be anonymous and inconspicuous, and she feared drawing attention to herself, especially from Jesus. She might have thought he would want nothing at all to do with her once he knew what her condition was. And if she'd gone to Jairus and the synagogue for help, she would probably have been told, first of all, to repent as the condition must have been a consequence of her sin, then have faith in God, then obey the requirements of the law, and then wait on the Lord for healing. For her to actually go and seek healing from Jesus, an unofficial preacher and healer, would be seen by those in positions of religious authority as a lack of faith. But it isn't only a woman made socially and religiously outcast by her condition 
who turns to Jesus for healing. The irony is that a member of the religious establishment who made her a religious and a social outcast also goes to Jesus, this unofficial preacher and healer in an act which is a lack of faith, in order to find healing for his daughter. We know that the woman had been suffering for 12 long years, but we don't know how long Jairus' daughter had been sick, whether it was a long-standing condition or whether she'd been come, become suddenly very ill. Now she was clearly on the point of death. The desperation and fear in Jairus at the thought of losing his daughter would be different but no less intense than what the woman with hemorrhages experienced. It could be argued that both Jairus and the woman were so desperate and so fearful that they just turned to Jesus as a last resort. This was a, a final throw of the dice for them. He was the nearest port in the storm engulfing them. That kind of understanding of what drove them to Jesus might, to some, undermine or invalidate any faith that they showed in him. But would it? The woman took a huge risk in even touching the hem of Jesus' garment, and her worst fears were realized. Jesus knew somebody had touched him as he felt power go out from him, and he sought to know who it was. This prompted the woman to own up and confess what she'd done and why she'd done it. Her fear and trembling at doing this demonstrated that she expected rejection and reprimand from Jesus, as no doubt she had experienced from others previously. It took great faith and great courage on her part to reach out and just touch the hem of his garment. And we see similar faith in Jairus too. The synagogue leader now faced the prospect of an unclean itinerant preacher and healer entering his house and coming in contact with his sick daughter. Have you noticed how Jesus sets aside here the demands of the Levitical law that he should stay apart from others until sunset? And he goes on his way to Jairus' house, even when he's told that the girl is dead. You see, contact with a corpse was another source of religious defilement. Jesus doesn't follow the advice of those bringing the news of the daughter's death and tell Jesus not to bother going to his house. Jairus allows Jesus to go to his house and to go and see his now dead daughter. Perhaps he is persuaded by what Jesus says to him. Don't be afraid. Just believe. But what is the nature of this faith that is the antidote to fear? What is the faith that Jesus is here urging on Jairus and commending in the woman? Well, first, let's say what it's not. It isn't faith in the sense of religious beliefs or ideas or practices or creedal statements. It's not about what we believe with our heads in an intellectual sense. 
nor is it about believing in spectacular or dramatic acts or events that have those who witness them in a state of jaw-dropping amazement. Jesus avoided those kinds of displays of power as much as he could, and when they do occur, they usually take place with very few people around. Notice how Jesus clears Jairus' house of all the professional mourners and the onlookers before quite simply and naturally, in a very ordinary and a very low-key manner, telling the girl, Talitha kume, little girl, it's time to get up. Rather like any parent waking a child to tell them to get ready for the day ahead. Maybe that's why the original Aramaic words spoken by Jesus to the girl were remembered and passed on to survive in a Greek text, simply because they were so natural and ordinary. No, this is the faith that Jesus is looking for. It's quite simply faith in him, faith in Jesus, faith in in who Jesus is. Faith in what God can do through Jesus. That's the faith. It's about entering into a relationship of trust with Jesus, even if at first there's no more to that trust than a spark of faith, as might well have been the case with Jairus and the woman. This isn't about having loads of, of faith stored away in a spiritual bank. This isn't about something that you've built up over the years through regular church attendance and saying your prayers every night. This isn't about being super spiritual. This is about believing that Jesus can make a difference to a seven-year-old grandson who's having an operation on his jaw and a few days old granddaughter who's fighting for a life in intensive care. That's why the power of Jesus to bring healing can reach non-Christians as well as Christians. It isn't something that is just for the in crowd, for those in the know, for those who've been signed up to the church for years gone by. This is something that is for sinners as well as for saints. The power of Jesus to heal is for the undeserving because it's all about grace. It isn't something that is reserved for the righteous. And the channel for that power to heal can be created by putting whatever faith we have in Jesus to enable God's kingdom to break into our lives, to allow the power of the Holy Spirit to make a difference. So that fear becomes turned into trust, desperation into hope, and sickness into healing a new life. One commentator, thinking particularly of the woman with hemorrhages, has described the kind of faith Jesus and Mark saw in her in these words. For Mark, faith always has this quality. Active, daring, venturous, 
risking all, ready to follow Jesus to death if necessary, and maybe therefore always tinged with the fear this lady felt as she stepped out of hiding that day. And for you and for me, the challenge that her faith brings to us is not found only in the context of healing, but it's found also in our whole approach to life and to Christian discipleship in general. For you and me, this story poses the question, what's the quality of your faith? What's the quality of the faith that you feel? What lies behind the faith you have? Is it about putting your trust in Jesus? Is it about trusting who Jesus is? Is it about believing in what Jesus can do for you? And if it is, and if therefore your faith is like that of the woman in the crowd, then to you also, Jesus may say, your faith has saved you. Your faith has healed you. Your faith has made you whole. Thanks be to God. Amen. We're going to use a song as a prayer for ourselves. And I want particularly as we sing this for you prayerfully to reflect that God is here with us, with you personally, and always will be. That as the second verse says, he is the God who saves and heals. In the New Testament, the, word, the same Greek word means both. And then in the third verse, for us in prayer to make that commitment of faith to God in Christ, in you, O Lord, I put my trust.